the passage for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the, clown, the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Thank you for the prayer, uh, Brother Uj. Uh, good morning to all of you. It's uh, good to see everyone. I wanted to uh, begin by sharing a word that uh, w was received by um, or from one of the uh, pastors in Ukraine. I saw this post not too long ago, and it reads like this. I talked to the pastor in Kiev today after last night's bombing. Uh, he didn't get much sleep, but he was still preparing his sermon for church tomorrow. 
If the church is still standing, he plans to make his way there and hold services. And so I, I read that, and I was just grateful uh, for the example of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are willing to worship together uh, despite the dangers and risks involved. And examples like this really help us examine our own priorities, don't they? Uh, I, I really don't think it would be possible right, to gather in the middle of a war zone unless you truly believe that worship is primarily meant for God and not for us. You know, we worship because God is worthy and he calls us to worship, not because it's convenient for us to worship. Amen? So I wanted to be, uh, begin with that reminder. I'm, feel, I'm hearing kind of an echo. I don't know. I like the nine o'clock sound better. Um, Today's message is part 33 in the longest sermon series that I've ever given, and the title today is The Rioting Soul, okay, not the rotting soul, but the rioting soul, uh, although one could argue that it virtually means the same thing, right? Um, I have a two-part outline for you today, part one, the anatomy of the rioting soul, and part two, the antidote for the rioting soul. Part one, the anatomy of the rioting soul. You know, there are a couple things you need to know if you want to get most out of this passage, okay? The first has to do with the kind of city Ephesus was. You know, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world, and at the heart of the life of the city was the worship of the goddess Artemis. Artemis was worshipped as the goddess of fertility, and sexuality, and in honor of her greatness, a massive temple, which was larger than the size of a modern-day football field, was constructed smack in the middle of this city. And this temple was so beautiful and so great in its scope that it's counted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Right? That is... A pretty impressive thing. You know, you can just look it up easily, uh, look up the drawings and some paintings. It's a marvelous structure. The temple also served as a bank where people from all over the world deposited their money since Artemis was, again, he, she was a goddess of fertility, which means she essentially promised a life of great wealth and prosperity. And so all this money that flowed into the city, of course, made Ephesus a wealthy, a very wealthy city. And as you can imagine, people established businesses built on selling various forms of wood and stone and metal, right, uh, to image the great Artemis. And before you knew it, the entire economy of the city and essentially the livelihood of the people became dependent upon Artemis worship. Brothers and sisters, this is one way idolatry controls an entire city. This is the progression. It begins at the heart level and then it expands out. And even it, it corrupts entire nations, I would argue. Think of it this way. Even if you don't believe in Artemis or you fill in the blank, whatever that may be, but in this case, even if you don't believe in Artemis, right, it's because you live in a city that is basically built 
on Artemis worship, you will financially suffer unless you do your small part to prop up Artemis in some way. That's the pressure that was placed on the people. And if you're someone like Demetrius, one of the main characters here in the story today, you know, Demetrius, whose, whose livelihood is completely dependent upon people buying Artemis trinkets and silver shrines that were you know, part of these miniature replicas of the temple, you would no longer be able to provide for your own family if people stopped purchasing Artemis you know, items from you. You were dependent on these things. And, and the, same, the same social dynamic holds true in our day as well, doesn't it? Which is why our culture has become what it is. You know, it's like even if you don't believe in, let's say, X, Y, and Z, or I'll even say, if you, even if you don't believe in like the CCP, okay, or the CRT, whatever it is, right? You're still pressured to prop up these things because your livelihood in some way depends upon it. But I'll refrain from ragging on our culture today. I know that I, I do that um, maybe sometimes too much. For our purposes right now, I just want you to be mindful of what kind of city Ephesus was. The second thing you need to know is that Paul had been serving in this city for roughly three years, okay? And as a result of his ministry, many people were turning to Christ, and they began to challenge the status quo by asking the obvious question, you know, wait, wait a second, if Paul's God is real, right, if what Paul is saying is true, then who exactly is Artemis? And so they not only would have gotten rid of all of their silver shrines in their homes, but they would have discouraged others from engaging in such idolatry as well. And people began to notice that these Christians were different from the average citizen. Right? They didn't worship at the altar of Artemis, and they didn't give in to the sexual immorality that was rampant in that day. Rather, they were committed to living in obedience to God's word. And that's why we learned that they were known to be a people of the way, the passage says, right? These were the people of the way. That's how they were perceived. Because their way of living was clearly distinguishable from the way the average person lived in those days. I thought of it this way. You know, during Paul's first year, the difference Christians made probably wasn't noticeable. It was negligible. But during Paul's second year, Demetrius may have noticed that there was perhaps a 10% decrease in his sales. So he's losing money. And during Paul's third year, it must have been an even significant drop in sales to the point where he knew that these Christians could no longer be ignored. Something had to be done. Something had to be said. And so he made an urgent plea to his people. Men, men of Ephesus, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. I'm sorry for you, all of you NBA fans, but this sounds too much like LeBron James. You know? We know that from, don't say anything bad. We know 
Stop people from saying, you know, prevent them from saying anything bad that's going to damage our business. We depend on this work. That was his appeal. So for Demetrius and the average Ephesian citizen, it felt as if Christians, as we've mentioned a few weeks ago, it was as if in their minds they were turning their world upside down as their way of life became severely disrupted. And their deep concern, it led to desperation. And so the outspoken Demetrius, he riles up the crowd with an impassioned plea and it leads to a citywide riot that filled the local theater, which was known, historians say that this theater was likely able to accommodate up to 20,000 to even 25,000 people. So this was no small riot. So that's how the story goes. So let me pause here and, and let me make a couple of observations. You can consider these as a couple teaching points, okay? Number one, I want you to first notice how Christianity challenged and changed the culture of Paul's day. I want you to know that Christianity is meant to change more than just our own hearts. It's also meant to challenge and change the culture in which we live because true believers don't just keep their faith private. They boldly live out their faith in obedience to Christ. And so their obedience is not something that can remain hidden for too long. It will be noticed sooner or later. And it will in some way impact. It will have an impact upon the world around us. You can't hide it. You can't hide the light of the gospel. You're not supposed to. A city on a hill is not hidden. And as I was considering some examples, I was reminded of the impact the missionary William Carey had made as a missionary to India in the late 18th century. During his time in India, this is maybe a little uh, brief lesson for you, history lesson, Wives, I'm sorry, sisters, wives in India were viewed as useless. And basically, they were viewed as an unnecessary burden upon society apart from their husbands. So when a husband died, it was standard practice to have the wife burned in the funeral fire. That's true. You can fact check that. So what did William Carey do? Well, as a Christian... He said that he had to get involved. And it took him many years of publicly campaigning and speaking out against such a wicked practice to bring about actual change, but he is the one God used. He is the one God used as a catalyst to get the laws in India changed. He saw it happen. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, you know, but, but who am I, you know? How can little old me make a change? I am virtually a nobody. And there aren't enough Christians that I can join hands with. That's everyone's natural response. I used to think that way too. But my former professor once challenged me by saying, you know, did you know that it only takes five pounds of salt to preserve 100 pounds of meat? In other words, he was saying, you don't have to be the majority you simply need to say, I believe in God's word, and I'm not compromising 
because I know that this is true and right. And when we as Christians show the courage and conviction to stand our ground, we have the great weight of God's moral, spiritual wisdom on our side was his encouragement. Let me also add that it was John Knox who once said, a man who, who has God on his side is a majority. When you are doing what's right, even when you are small in number, you are powerful because you are a salt crystal in the hands of an almighty God. I hope that image or vision helps you and encourages you. In Paul's day, keep in mind, it, it's not that Christians outnumbered the unbelieving population. It wasn't the case. However, those who claimed to be Christians, they were committed to faithfully living out their faith no matter what. You know, I have truly little control over how other Christians choose to live elsewhere, but as far as our own Cornerstone members go, I want to do my very best to call upon you not to be a Christian in name only. Do not be a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only. Be a Christian who is fully committed to boldly living out your faith in this dark and decaying world. That is your purpose, not given by me, but by God himself. My second observation is this. Riots don't just begin on the streets. They begin in our hearts. It begins right here from within. And that should sound obvious to you, but I mention this because I wanted to give us a moment to examine our own hearts before the Lord, right, to see if there is a discontented spirit within us that could easily grow into a more dangerous, rebellious, and rioting spirit. Because in one sense, let's be honest, we're all very much like Demetrius, aren't we? We've all been there. We all know what it means to worship other gods and to be unwilling to surrender to the true God. We all know what it means to use God for personal gain as Demetrius used Artemis. It's like Artemis was only good as long as she promised to make the people prosperous. And that's how we sometimes treat God, isn't it? But that is not true worship. That's self-serving religion that is driven by, essentially, rebellion and the rioting spirit that is within us. I don't think I ever shared this about me, but when I was attending college in Korea, I took part in one public demonstration, okay? You know, you know what that is? If you, if you haven't watched Snowdrop yet, you know, part of the story is that we're demonstrating. And, you know, basically, they're standing up against some cause, okay? That was a demonstration. Thankfully, I never participated in any violent demonstrations, which are basically, you know, public riots. Uh, my friends did that, okay? <laughs> but I'm ashamed to say that even the one peaceful public demonstration that I attended, I, I really had no idea what it was about. Okay? I just remember pumping my fist, because everyone was doing it, 
and chanting a few words. I didn't even know what I was chanting, to be honest. I just, I just did it because everyone was doing it. And it was probably some pro-communist chant, most likely, because that's what college students always did. But I went to the demonstration because my life at the time had no real direction and purpose. And my heart, quite frankly, was tormented by anger and discontentment. And I just wanted to stand for something. I wanted to stand for a worthy cause. But I didn't realize that I, I, I couldn't stand for a worthy cause unless I was standing with God. I learned that after the fact. I was lost. I was confused. And maybe some of you can relate to that experience. You know, you, you give your life to something, not because you truly believe it to be true, but because you're willing to believe in anything that will give you some sense of meaning and purpose. But I want to remind you this morning that it's all in vain if it's not with the Lord. I'm certain that there's many people today in our world who are experiencing such confusion, perhaps even in our church, and that is not a good place to be. St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions these famous words, you probably heard it at some point, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Famous words. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It's a great saying. Right? But to say that our hearts are restless is to put it mildly because restlessness is essentially the same as, as discontentment okay, or dissatisfaction. And as you should know, our discontentment can easily lead to bitterness and anger and outright rebellion against the Lord. And what's dangerous about living in discontentment for so long is that you will, brothers and sisters, guaranteed, you will inevitably grow in your anger toward God, and your soul will eventually riot against him. Virtually all of the cultural battles that have been waged over the meaning of marriage and of gender and of sexuality and of abortion and the list can go on. All of these things, if you think about it, they're a result of this clash between God's word, what he says is true, and people's attempt to riot against him, is it not? There is a rioting spirit within us all. You know, maybe we say, you know, we're, we're, that's to be expected, we can say. That's to be expected from the world. But the problem is that even those within the church are rioting against God's will as well, which is why God may have had his church go through a season of pruning, I'm thinking, over the past two years. This is not a good thing, though, that even his people would rebel and riot against him. So what is the antidote, part two? The antidote for the rioting soul. The basic question I'd like to answer in this part is the question of what does the rebellious and rioting soul need 
in order to temper itself and to be made well again. I'll briefly share three things, and I'll wrap up the message. Okay, number one, the rioting soul needs to know that God is the ultimate judge who will render perfect justice. He is the ultimate judge. Now look at the passage one more time. Surprisingly, the way the rioting mob gets dispersed, right? They eventually scatter, they all go home, but they, they're dispersed because a speech was given by, not, not the clown clerk, as Connie almost said, but the town clerk, okay? The town clerk, he may have been a clown, I don't know, um, that basically appeals to justice. He appeals to justice. He basically said, let me summarize. He says, look, men of Ephesus, if you have a complaint against these Christians, you know what you should do? You should go use our court system and you go pursue justice the right way. But if you continue, right, with this commotion, then you will be charged with a crime. And surprisingly, that appeal to justice, it worked, right? Their impulse to riot becomes tempered by this idea that there is a judge that they have to answer to. And of course, look, I, I know that in their minds, they weren't thinking of God as, as being their judge, but the way I look at it is this. Because God has given us a conscience, he's given everyone, believer and unbeliever, a conscience, right? A strong appeal to what is right and just, and the fact that we all have to answer to someone eventually is meant to temper our sinful desires, no matter who it may be, believer or unbeliever. And that's what we see in this story, right? Their sinfulness, their idolatrous lust is tempered. And if that's true, how much more should this be true for us as Christians who know that we will have to ultimately answer to God who is the ultimate judge of all? So may the God of justice temper our rioting hearts this morning. Secondly, the rioting soul needs the ministry of the gospel and the testimony of the church. Okay, the rioting soul needs the ministry of the gospel and the testimony of the church. Do you know how Paul was able to make such an impact, such a powerful impact in Ephesus? It wasn't because he all of a sudden put on his politician hat. He didn't start campaigning for office, okay? It was through the faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God. That's how the world was turned upside down according to the minds of the Ephesians. You, know, you can think of it this way. I think this might be a helpful uh, vision for all of us, okay? We're all by nature rebels and rioters in our hearts. And the only reason why some of us are no longer haters of God is because Jesus Christ, right, by the grace of God, but more specifically, by the sword of his word, he came to conquer our souls. He came and he slayed us and he conquered our wicked and rebellious hearts that we may fully surrender our lives to him. That's what took place. That's another way to describe what salvation is. He saved us by conquering rebels. He slayed our hearts. He rid us from all the rebellion and the rioting that happens within us. 
Again, Christians were not the majority, brothers and sisters, in Ephesus, but they were a faithful minority. They were faithful because they were slain by God. They were conquered by him. They submitted to his authority. And their public testimony made a lasting impact wherever they were present. That is why we ought never to downplay the importance of the role of the church in this world. If you're ever tempted to poo-poo the church, okay, and be so critical and ungrateful, I want to caution you. I understand, you know, sometimes the church will look absolutely silly and even downright corrupt because the church is just a collection of broken sinners after all. But the power of the church, brothers and sisters, doesn't lie in its people. The power of the church lies in the message it proclaims and in the Savior it testifies of. And that is why the church throughout its history has always made public and corporate worship one of its highest priorities because it knew why it was set apart from the, by the Lord. You know, I want to remind you this morning that you know, worship isn't just meant for us. It is meant for us too, but it's not only meant for us. Okay? It's also meant to be a loud and clear public declaration, right? not just to the unbelieving world either, but to the devil himself. It's a de declaration that says, look, we do not serve the Artemises of our day, but we serve the one true and living God. We're declaring that every time we meet together and raise our voices and praise to the Lord. We're declaring our allegiance that no one is greater than our God, that he is worthy no matter what. That's why the example of the worshiping church in Ukraine is so powerful. You know, by gathering in the midst of war where the risks are so high, they are too declaring that God is worthy no matter what circumstances they found they find themselves in, and I think that's an inspiring example that we ought to follow. Lastly, the rioting soul must honestly confess weakness and humbly call upon the Lord for help. Because the Lord is where our help comes from. You know, this past week, there was a dear brother who sent me a link to a new song to listen to, telling me that he's been listening to it on repeat. Okay, and so I was intrigued. I was like, okay, what, how great is this song? So I, I, I listened to it. Actually, he actually sent me two songs. The second one was like, just okay. The first song, though, <laughs> is a song that the worship team did their best to play. It's, al it's always rough the first time they you know, do it, so we'll give them some time to to learn and perfect it, but, but uh, the song is titled Psalm 90, okay? Satisfy us with your love. And that was timely for me because honestly, this past week was a little harder for me than other weeks, and my heart was struggling really to find contentment in the Lord. And I, I had a grumbling spirit, and I, I needed the Lord to minister to me through his word, so God used his brother to send me a song, and I was grateful for it. But, you know, I, I got to look at Psalm 90 more closely, and I, I love how honest 
the psalmist is because think about it, brothers, sisters. You don't, you don't cry out to the Lord with like, satisfy us, Lord, satisfy us. You don't, you don't do that unless life has been really hard for you and, and unless you're, you've been really struggling to find real satisfaction in God, right? It's because you're struggling, you cry out to God for help. Satisfy me, satisfy me. So one thought I had, had for all of us is this. It's, I know we all have our unique struggles, but it's okay, brothers and sisters, if you're struggling right, to trust God in the midst of your trials. It's okay if, if you're finding it hard to, to be satisfied in him, if, if satisfaction in the Lord doesn't come easy for you. However, okay, however, what this psalm teaches us is that we're not to stay there. We're not to remain there. There's an invitation for us to join the psalmist and the millions of believers who have echoed these words throughout history in the midst of their own trials to sing to the Lord, to ask him for grace that we may be satisfied in him once again. Lord, when the sun comes up, satisfy us. Before the day has passed us by, satisfy us. Before we forget all of your goodness, Satisfy us should be our cry for help if we have been struggling to find contentment in the Lord, if, if anger has been our dominant emotion or bitterness. Another thing this song does is it puts all of our problems in perspective by reminding us that our greatest problem is not what we think. It's not what we think, brothers, sisters. I was reminded as well. Because when you're, when you're in the mess of life and you're like trying to deal with this and that, you think that your greatest problem are those things that have been plaguing you emotionally. That's what you think. But God's word has a way of sort of recalibrating, right? us and giving us perspective, and we're reminded that our greatest problem is actually the wrath of God that we deserve to have poured upon our heads. And thankfully, that problem has been resolved through Jesus, who took that punishment on our behalf. And if we know that that is our greatest problem, and that our greatest problem has been resolved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and then how can we not respond with gratitude and joy? And how can that not put things in better perspective for us? You know, we often forget that, don't we? I forget that. And so we end up living joyless lives with ungrateful hearts. So brothers, sisters, I think it would be appropriate to be reminded this morning what the Lord has done for you and for me. Remember that Jesus is our dwelling place forever and ever. He is our shelter. He is our refuge. And so we're able to hide in him because what he has done for us, he absorbed the wrath of God so we don't have to. We're rescued through him. Therefore, we sing about him being our dwelling place, shelter, our refuge in times of trouble, in times of great need. So let's go to him as we wrap up our service. Let me pray for us and 
I believe uh, the worship team will lead us again in singing Psalm 90. Dear Father, we confess that our hearts are prone to wonder, and sadly at times we're even tempted to riot against your holy will, and we know that left to ourselves, our hearts will only grow further away from you. So Lord, open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we may see your beauty and your goodness. Not only do we need your forgiveness, but we need our hearts to be fully satisfied in you by your love and grace. As we see you as you truly are this morning, may our confession be that your love is indeed better than life itself. Lord, satisfy our wounded and broken hearts with your presence. Satisfy us and help us remember that Jesus is our dwelling place, our shelter, and our refuge. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.